Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about other aspects of the publishing world, themed discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. In 2022, I would love to have you join my Patreon group. Hosting a podcast takes a ton of time, resources, and effort and your support continues to make it possible. I offer at least three bonus episodes a month. There is a Facebook group where we all chat books, and we are currently reading two advanced copies of books and chatting with the authors pre-publication. Thanks to those that already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Deanna Rayburn about The Impossible Imposter. Deanna is a sixth-generation native Texan with a degree in English and history from the University of Texas at San Antonio. Her novels have been nominated for numerous awards, including the Edgar, two RT Reviewers Choice Awards, the Agatha, two Dillis Wins, and a Last Laugh. She launched a Victorian mystery series featuring intrepid butterfly hunter and amateur sleuth Veronica Speedwell in 2015, and her latest in that series is The Impossible Imposter. Her first contemporary thriller will be published in the fall of 2022. I hope you enjoy our conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Deanna. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Cindy. I am so glad you're here. This series has been a favorite of mine since the very first book, and this is the first time we're getting to chat about it, so I'm thrilled to pieces that you're here. Oh, well, it's a treat for me, too. I love writing these books so much, and we're going on. This is my second release that's coming out in the Veronica series during a pandemic, so it's nice to have fresh faces and voices, uh, even if it's virtual. Absolutely. And so I thought, because this is a series, before we start talking about The Impossible Imposter, we might back up a little bit and you could just sort of do an intro generally about the series for those that might not be familiar with it yet, and then we'll start talking about this book. Does that sound good? Absolutely. Um, So the first book in the series is A Curious Beginning, and it follows the adventures of a butterfly hunter by the name of Veronica Speedwell as she kind of learns some things about her past that she never knew, um, dark and dangerous secrets, 
And she falls over a dead body or two, you know, as you do, and kind of gets in the habit of solving murders. And she gets herself a dishy sidekick along the way and just has all sorts of improbable but not impossible adventures in Victorian London. Well, her sidekick is definitely dishy. And that's one of the things I want to talk a little bit about. Everyone wants to talk about <laughs> Of course they do. So I would love to know the inspiration for Veronica and then the inspiration for Stoker. Well, you know, Veronica is one of those characters who kind of just sprang to mind fully formed. I graduated yonks ago with a degree in history and English. And my history degree at the time, I, I was at a university in Texas that didn't have a particularly huge history department. And so the history was kind of just really generally Western European, male-centric. You know, it's it's what were the men folk doing? And, you know, they were killing each other a lot. It was lots of wars, lots of battles, a little economics. And there wasn't a whole lot of discussion about what the women were doing. And so by the time I got my degree, I went looking for myself to go see. And I was I was really intrigued by Victorian female explorers. I thought that, you know, the accounts of what they were doing, they were just so fascinating because we think of Victorian women as being kind of repressed and prudish and sitting in the in the the parlor tatting lace and pouring out tea for the vicar. But a lot of these women were doing some really, really fascinating things. Some of them were natural historians, some of them were archaeologists. Some of them just traveled for the sake of travel, but they went all around the world. And when they traveled the world, they wrote letters, they sent back journals that they had kept. They held lectures where they talked about what they had done. Sometimes they did magic lantern shows, all sorts of really, really fascinating accounts of what they got up to as they traveled the world and, and kind of explored things that were new to them. And so I was so in, in love with all of these letters and journals and and you know memoirs that I was reading. But there was one woman in particular I found really, really fascinating. And she was a lepidopterist or butterfly hunter by the name of Margaret Fountain. And she left journals, she left butterfly collections, and she talked at length and kind of in, in really surprising detail about her love affairs while she was traveling the world. Because that's another thing we don't really think about Victorian women doing. And she had interracial relationships. She had premarital relationships. So she, she was kind of, you know, indulging in these flirtations that went a whole lot further than flirtation and, you know, writing about it really, really frankly. And it was just such a, a, a refreshing and unexpected thing to encounter in my research that I thought, you know, if I'm ever going to do a Victorian series again, I would absolutely have to do some character who's kind of a, an homage to Margaret, just because she was such a character. And that's how Veronica came about, just right there. I gave her a lot of things that are not in common with Margaret Fountain, but but the the idea of a lepidopterist who travels the world and kind of takes life on her own terms is is, is very much my little love letter to Margaret Fountain. Stoker is is kind of a different kettle of fish altogether. When I was reading about the the Victorian female explorers, I, I came across a group of them who were natural historians, and that kind of overlapped into some reading about men who were involved in establishing basically museums the way we think of museums today. And one of them that I was really uh, really intrigued by was Carl Akeley. 
if you've ever been to the Natural History Museum in New York, you have been to the Akeley Hall of Mammals, which is named for him. And, you know, they have these great little dioramas with these taxidermied specimens in them, which are absolutely fascinating. And they were kind of the invention of Carl Akeley. Nobody had really put these kind of animal specimens together with paintings of the backdrops of, of where they would have come from and planted the the ground around them with grasses or plants or mosses from where they would have come from. And, and so Carl kind of gave this really holistic picture of what uh, an animal display should be. And at that time, natural historians who were putting together museums would go out and actually get the specimens themselves. They had to go into the field and hunt and taxidermy and bring everything back and put it up into a display. And I was just absolutely riveted by the idea of somebody who has to know every particle of their job from start to finish and who is that completely immersed in what they do. Stoker is a little bit different. Stoker is, is at the forefront of the conservation movement. So he's not going out and killing trophies. That's how he started his career, but he's kind of had a, um, an evolution of his own. So he would rather just rehabilitate trophies and use them for education. And so he and, and Veronica are putting together a museum under the auspices of an earl who is very wealthy and very eccentric and has a lot of money and can put together a museum for the benefit of the, the general public. And the kind of the running joke throughout all the books, I'm writing the eighth one now, is that the museum is never finished. Like they always find something else that they have to do. And so they're just working their way through decades and decades uh, of backlog of all of these things being bought and stored. And they never really know what they're going to find. And of course, they keep getting distracted because people get keep getting murdered around them and they have to go figure out who the bad guys are. I was just going to say, I'm not sure that museum is ever going to be finished, <laughs> <laughs> which is fine with me because it provides a great plot line. But as you were talking about it, I was like, yeah, I think they've been working on it for quite some time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, and, and as the books run, it's only been two and a half or three years. Well, that's true, but it's been seven stories. Yeah, so that's true. <laughs> so as you're reading the books, it probably feels longer, but it's really only been a couple of years. Exactly. But, you know, my, my idea was like, I have this mental picture of them like in their 70s, still cataloging, still trying to get the museum going because of the fact that, that well, part of the problem is the Earl they work for won't stop buying things. Right. He's got a, a wonderful pack rat mentality. And he just actually he's more of a magpie because he can't resist the shiny. So as soon as he sees something exciting, he's like, I got to buy that. And he just assumes there's going to be room for it somewhere. And so Veronica and Stoker kind of quietly discourage this. They would prefer quality over quantity. But, uh, you know, he's an earl and he has money. And so he's going to do what he wants. Well, Deanna, do you have so much fun creating this world? I mean, it sounds like you do as you talk about it. And I absolutely love inhabiting it when I'm reading the books, but it just sounds like it would be so much fun to be creating all of this. Oh, it is. I have the best time with these books. And, and I think that's one of those things that really translates to a reader. You know, there, there are books where authors just turn themselves inside out and, you know, they're, they're kind of raw and brutal and, and a reader feels like they've really been through the wars after they read them. And then there are other books where you can tell the writer was just having a good time and, and that's what they want for the reader. And that's what the Veronica books are. They're, they're a romp, you know, because of the fact that lots of things happen in the books that are improbable. They're never impossible, but a lot of things happen in the books that are improbable it kind of leads to this sort of heightened reality. 
that Veronica and Stoker live in. I mean, how many people are really going to stumble over that many dead bodies in the course of their of their lives? In two and a half years, right? <laughs> two and a half years. Right. Yeah. I, it's a wonder nobody looks at them and thinks, you know, hey, this is suspicious. Maybe they're the cause of all of it. Right. So now that we've talked a little bit about the series, why don't you tell me more about The Impossible Imposter? Well, I actually, I have to get my head straight because you know how it is where you've got, I had one book come out in paperback in January. I've got this book that's coming out in hardcover and then I'm writing the next one. So I have to, I have to make sure I'm focused and I'm not giving away spoilers. Impossible Imposter takes place mostly on the Devonshire Moors, which anyone who's read Hound of the Baskervilles will understand exactly why I wanted to set a book there. Um, and this time Veronica is asked to go and uh, give a little help to the young ward of her sometime friend and sometime nemesis, Sir Hugo Montgomery, who is the um, head of Scotland Yard's special branch. And special branch is tasked with, among other things, looking out for the interests of the royal family. And Veronica has a a somewhat semi-legitimate connection to the royal family. And so she's kind of always operating on the fringes of their world. But this case is personal. This this case doesn't have anything to do with the royals. This has to do with Sir Hugo Montgomery kind of needing a little bit of help because he's got a, a goddaughter who's not terribly happy. And he has a puzzle that he is hoping Veronica can solve for him. There is a young man who has turned up, purportedly a missing heir to a landed estate and a fortune. And Veronica might be able to figure out if he's telling the truth or not. I loved the setting, as you referenced earlier. I thought it was fascinating, the bogs, just kind of learning about all of that. But I also love the storyline and the connection to Veronica and the personal aspects of it. Yeah, well, without giving too much away. <laughs> right, I, exactly. Like, I'm, trying, I'm really trying to tiptoe around spoilers here. <laughs> yeah, the you know, part of the reason I wanted to do a book set on the Moors, all of my books have some sort of nod or Easter egg to something that I love or something that was formative for me. And the very first proper mystery I ever read was Hound of the Baskervilles. I think I read it when I was probably six years old. There were these great illustrated classics editions that were abridged for kids. And so it it was just, it was my first exposure to, you know, kind of proper detective stories. And I absolutely adored it. And that one has always, it still to this day is my favorite of the, of the Holmes canon. And it's just such a, a kind of evocative, eerie place and, a, and a, a fascinating setting. But honestly, the real reason I wanted to put a book there is because I'm, I'm very active on Twitter. I love Twitter. And one of the things that we joke about is the fact that if you are Gen X, like I am, you really thought quicksand was going to feature a lot more <laughs> in your grown up life than it has. Because when we were all kids, quicksand was terrifying. Like it was the thing that was on every TV show. Somebody would fall into quicksand and they were absolutely, totally 100% going to die. And so I remember thinking, okay, well, I, I, I want a quicksand type setting, you know, just kind of because we keep joking about the fact that it would be absolutely terrifying just to kind of find the earth giving way underneath you and, and not be able to, to extricate yourself. So I thought, you know what? Veronica needs to uh, to experience that, and and how would she handle herself? If you know, because she's she's a seasoned world traveler, she's a natural historian, she's been around the block a few times. So you know, would she fall in? Would she skirt it? Would she you know how how would she throw someone in? Probably Stoker. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was great fun. And then in every 
not actually every book, but probably every other book, I like to deal with a few elements of Stoker or Veronica's backstory and, and kind of dole it out in small pieces. And so really just a couple of pages in, we, we get an idea of how this person may have encountered Veronica previously and why Sir Hugo thinks she would be helpful and why he has singled her out to go and help him with this. So I don't think that's probably giving too much away in that regard. But, you know, Veronica alludes a lot to a very, very interesting past. We know she's been kidnapped by bandits. We know she's been in a shipwreck. We know she's been in a volcanic explosion. We know she's, you know, made all sorts of interesting friends. So I I thought it might be fun to kind of introduce one of those elements and, and see if we could get another little glimpse into where she's come from and what she's seen on her travels. I really liked that. Yes, I want to make sure it's spoiler free, but I just really liked the way it all resolved. I was I was totally intrigued and it kept the pages turning very quickly. Oh, I'm very, very glad. I'm very glad to hear that. So do you have a huge spreadsheet or map on your wall or, you know, something or another that helps you keep up with all of the different plot lines, what you've done in earlier books, ideas you have for the future? How does it work for you to try to keep it all straight? Oh, no, I'm not that smart. No, (laughs) like a smart and organized and prepared person would have that. And I do not. No, not in any way, shape or form. (laughs) Okay, you're writing this one and you're thinking, well, what exactly have I said about Veronica before with regards to such and such? Do you then have to go back to your book and look or how does that work? Yes, that's what I do. And and actually, readers do a much better job of remembering what I've said than I do, because I put a book out and I'm on to the next one. And I don't reread them and I don't listen to them. Although, you know, we have just stupendously good narration by Angel Masters for the audio versions. But I will put out a call again on Twitter and say, you know, hey, does anybody happen to remember you know, is it's an, another ongoing joke that my characters keep acquiring dogs. Sometimes I'll throw it out and say, does anybody remember, is this dog female? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that is so funny. And they, and they will give me, like, they will actually screenshot the exact page for me and say, well, in this book, this is what, and like, they know it immediately. They're, they're awesome. I, I rely upon them hugely because they're fantastic. I had actually written another Victorian series that I think was five books long before this, the Lady Julia Gray series. And there is a series Bible for that with only five books in it. And yet I've got this, I'm writing my eighth book now, and I still haven't done a series Bible. And I, you know, at some point you just kind of feel like, no, it's too late. It's too late. It's too much information. The ship has sailed. I'm just going to have to keep doing it the way I'm doing it and hope for the best. But I mean, that sounds like it's working really great to just crowdsource. (laughs) Way faster than going back and rereading your books for you, I'm sure. uh, Readers are incredibly generous people. And they, they, you know, they will, they will fix on something with regard to a character and they will, they will remember it in a way that you can't if you're trying to just constantly have this big picture and move on to the next thing because you know, they're, they're able to just do this laser focus attention on details, which is magnificent. And I love them for it. I also think you've created a unique series. There's not really anything else like it that I can recall. I mean, nothing I've stumbled across ever and two really likable characters. And so I think when you put all that together, you're going to have a lot of loyal fans who are very invested in the series. Oh, my, uh, you know, I, I am, just the luckiest person on the planet. I have amazing readers and they're 
just incredibly kind. And I love the fact that they're kind of on this little Veronica journey with me. And what I want for them when they pick up a Veronica book is for them to have a good time. And for them to, you know, whatever is happening in their life, whether they just need some relaxation or whether they're going through something and they need the escapism, whatever it is, that they find that, that they that they have some time that's just them and just these characters and that they thoroughly enjoy what I've done for them. Well, I think they definitely do. And I think we're all going through something these days. So having a book like this <laughs> is wonderful because it literally can just take you to another place in time with super entertaining characters and see what's happening with them currently. Well, I mean, you know, I I think every writer is first a reader. So I understand exactly how important it can be. And I know, you know, for the past two years, almost, it, it's been incredibly essential for me to be able to escape between the pages of another world and just get away for a little bit and kind of immerse myself in something that isn't here and now. And I know how much I appreciate other people's work in that regard. So the fact that, you know, I can, I can do that for folks just makes me really, really happy. Well, you definitely do. Deanna, your covers are just stunning. I have loved them from the beginning. And it's always so much fun to see what the latest book is going to look like. Do you have any say in this? Do you contribute anything? How does that work for you? I don't at all. I am not responsible for the covers. That is down to the glorious art department at Berkeley Publishing. And they, the very first Veronica book had a different type of cover with, for the hardcover release. And they wanted to change up the packaging. And so they came up with this format for the paperback release of A Curious Beginning. And as soon as I saw it, I knew they had absolutely hit it out of the park. And so they have just continued with this format for all the rest of the of the Veronica books. And, you know, it'll it'll come about months before the book comes out that my editor will send me an email and say, okay, I'm getting ready to brief the art department. You know, do you have some thoughts? Is there anything you'd like for me to tell them? Any any colors, any settings, any motifs, anything like that. And so I'll send her some ideas. And she goes and briefs the art department and whatever they choose to do is a hundred percent on them. They consult with my editor. They'll consult with the sales department and the marketing department. And so everybody kind of comes together and figures out what's the best way to package this particular Veronica book. And they, I think they have a ball doing them because they, they put in these gorgeous little Easter eggs. Because if you examine each cover closely, there's always an image of Veronica somewhere and there's always some little motif, like A Murderous Relation is the book that features um, a set of jewels that are diamond stars. And so they put little diamond stars all over the cover because there's always this little falling motif that, you know, something that that just seems to be descending over the, the front of the cover. And so, and it changes from book to book. It might be leaves or it might be snowflakes or as in the case of, of that book, the, the diamond stars. And I think they really have a great deal of fun figuring out what motif to use. And, you know, uh, like I was very surprised when I saw an impossible imposter because they asked me for ideas of, of color. And I said, well, we haven't done a purple one yet. And they ran with it and, and came back with this, this, you know, lovely violet cover, but they always choose a really strong contrasting color for the, um, the font for the, you know, for the title, for my name. And I was, so surprised when I saw this one, because it just, it makes them look very, very 
fresh and modern, even though they're historical books. And I, I think the message that the art department is trying to send is, yeah, these are historical, but they're very accessible and they're going to be fun. And for those of you who are reading closely and you see, you know, hey, there's a dog here. Yes, there's going to be a dog featuring this book or, you know, there's going to be a hot air balloon ride or something like that. So I love that they they put little little secrets in the cover for the, the you know, kind of little teases for the reader as to what's going to be happening in the book. I'm going to have to go back and look at the hardcover for your first book because I don't recall ever having seen that. I know I picked up the series with the covers that they currently have now, so I must have grabbed it as a paperback. But when I worked at Murder by the Book, one of my favorite displays would be when you were coming for a signing and we'd have all of your books up front, you know, as you walk in the store to the left, because they're all so stunning. And just to have them all in a line there together, and they would never stay on the shelf for very long because everybody was always buying them up. But it's just such a wonderful display, and they're so much fun to pour over, as you were talking about, the little jewels. They look absolutely amazing when they're put together. They do. Because the art department has chosen such really, really strong, strong colors. And, you know, I, I, I did have input. Like, we didn't even discuss the colors at all until we were coming up to, I guess it was when I was writing book five, A Murderous Relation. And I, um, I happened to be in New York City and got to go and Usually authors don't meet the art department for their own sanity. They they don't necessarily want to have to deal with us because uh, God love them. We'd be bothering them all the time saying, can you put this on my cover? Can you put that on my cover? (laughs) My publisher had actually thrown a party for me because I I was lucky enough to get an Edgar nomination. And so the, the art department came to the party and I got to tell them to their faces how much I love the work that they're doing for the books. And you know, it's it's one thing to send thank you messages through my editor, but it was something else to be able just to tell them, you know, right there, immediately, face to face, you're amazing and you're doing incredible work and I thank you for it. And they were they were so lovely and gracious and they said, Well, have you given any thought to a, a murderous relation? And I said, It feels like a book that needs a black cover, if that's possible. And that's all I said. And then you know, a couple of months later, the the covers mocked up and it's black with red and silver accents. And it was just, it was stunning. And then after that, the colors that I have suggested, they have very, very kindly given me. But I think after Impossible Imposter, I'm going to just have to throw myself on their mercy because we're running out of colors. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you have to do different tones of a color you've used before. <laughs> oh my God, because we've had two blue books now. Like That's true. Uh, you know, I'm starting to get scared. No, the, the, the second blue book was an, uh, an Unexpected Peril. And that one was that shade of blue for a very specific reason, because that shade of blue is referenced several times in the book. And so they asked me what the color was and I sent them the exact, it's a very specific shade of, of kind of cerulean blue that features on a staircase at Powderham Castle in England, which is the home of the Earls of Devon. And it's called Powderham Blue. And I had used it as the inspiration for a color I called Alpenwalder Blue. Right. For a fictitious country that I got to make up because that's super fun. You get to make up your own country like, that's amazing. And so I needed a color for their flags and their military uniforms. And I was like, fine. So I gave them this gorgeous shade of blue. And uh, the art department was like, yes, and ran with it and put that on the cover. So but at this point, like, I'm, I'm kind of running out of ideas. I'm getting a little bit nervous. So I'm going to have to just throw myself on their expertise and let them come up with what we do next, I think. Well, and I think art departments are so good at what they do. So I'm sure they will have some color that you'll be like, I wish I'd thought of that. And that's perfect. Right? Like when when we did an Unexpected Peril and it's that beautiful cerulean blue, I would never in a thousand years have thought of using 
tangerine for the text on the cover. And yet that's the color they went with for the highlights and the way it pops against that blue, which makes perfect sense. I mean, they're opposite each other on the color wheel, but I have thought of it. No, I would not, which is why I'm not the professional. But it does pop. That is an interesting color swap there. Like you said, I guess, because they are on opposite parts of the color wheel, but definitely the tangerine pops against that blue. It does. It does indeed. All the covers uh, kind of feature that where they there's an unexpected choice that they've made for the secondary color that they just honed in on exactly what would contrast uh, most effectively with the base color. And again, you know, I think it sends the, a message of, you know, this is this is going to be an unexpected book. This is this is not going to be, you know, your regular Victorian murder mystery that's that's, you know, kind of stayed and decorous and what you expect. That it is definitely not in a very good way. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And then you have another book coming out in September. Do you want to talk about that book? I do. And I am so stupidly excited about this book. I can't even. Um, It is called Killers of a Certain Age. And it is about four assassins who've worked for an elite organization who are on the cusp of retirement. They are 60 years old and realize that they're organization is trying to take them out. So they have to band together to survive. And they are all women. And they are all badass. And I am just beyond about this book. It's the first contemporary that I've ever done. And so it is a huge departure for me. But my husband says it reads like my Twitter feed, which is hopefully a good thing. Well, that's so much fun. As soon as you started describing it, I was like, that sounds contemporary. And I don't think she's written contemporary before. That must be nice to kind of have a different change of pace and do something different than you've done before. You know, it really, really is because I've I've written books with, you know, kind of very, very strong friendships and, and relationships. I do a lot of found family in my books, which these four women kind of certainly have relied on each other as as found family. But I've never written anything with protagonists who are that age. I've never written a contemporary. I've never written female assassins. So the whole thing was just, it was an absolute ride. It took about two and a half years to write it because it was, it had to be fitted in around the Veronica books. And, you know, it was not, it literally was not until this past version of it was due, the last version of it was due to my editor. I think October 16th of 21. And I woke up three days before it was due and figured out finally exactly what order certain scenes had to be in. Like it took that long, that close to the wire before I finally figured it out. But I did. I cracked it. I got there and I could not be prouder of this book. I absolutely adore it. Is it coming out with Berkeley as well? It is. It is. So I've gotten to work with all of the people that I adore. They were actually the ones who came to me and said, you know, hey, have you thought about writing something with women who are maybe a little bit older? And I said, I love that idea. And they were like, great, you can literally write whatever you want. And so I pitched them an idea for a contemporary and they said, oh my God, we thought you would want to write a historical. And I was like, no, I, if I'm going to do different, let's go all the way. So it's, you know, different tense, different POV, different time period, everything completely. I have no comfort zone left, Cindy. I have no comfort zone. It's, I was pushed so far to the wall with this one that when, when my editor called me to, to tell me that 
she loved it. And this final version was, was there that, that I had done it. I literally just started like heaving sobs on the phone because I, I, I worked so, so hard on it and I had so much fun with it, but I really, I didn't want to kind of sit in a space where I felt super confident. I wanted to, to just try my damnedest to do something that was, that was going to stretch me as far as I possibly could, which I would not have been able to do without a super supportive team behind it. You know, I had my editor, I had uh, another editor in the house was working on it as well with her. And, you know, my, my editor's boss was in on all of this. So there, there, you know, every time I really just kind of needed a, a boost of confidence or a, yeah, you know what, this part is great. This is working. Keep this and, and go, you know, push that section further. Cause you've got this part. Great. Those little pep talks and, and that kind of cheerleading really, it means the world when you are doing something creative and kind of at your core, you're like, but can I, but you know, can I do this? Am I doing this right? Am I doing this well? And so having that kind of in-house support was, was really, really key to getting this book where I wanted it. It was a ride. It was an absolute ride. It sounds like it, but that's wonderful and nice to challenge yourself, do something a little bit different. And I think women in their 50s and 60s are craving characters that are their age or close in age to them. And every time there is a character like that, everybody raves about it. So I think people will be thrilled to pieces that you're writing about women in their 60s. You know, I I think it really does in a lot of ways kind of tap into the zeitgeist because I'm like, I'll be 54 this year and I don't think I've ever been madder. Uh, You know, I mean, there's so that I'm just legitimately enraged about on a fairly frequent basis. And at the same time, there's a whole lot that I no longer get upset about at all, that I just don't care what people think about because you, you do get a lot more comfortable in your own skin as you get older. And just because you're getting older doesn't mean that the skills that you've learned or the experiences that you've had are lesser or that they're packed away. They inform everything about who you are and what you're doing. And, you know, just the, the, the gray hair and the wrinkles don't mean that you, you stop being who you were. And so being able to kind of explore this aspect of aging was really fascinating to me because, you know, I, I, I am just a wee bit younger than they are, but not that much. And, and so looking at that, I mean, it kind of freaked me out because when I was going to do the one thing that I, that I begged them when they were doing the cover is I said, look, these, these women are not white haired with walkers. 60 today does not look like it did when I was a kid. You know, these, uh, because I started Googling, you know, 60 year old actresses and you find out that somebody who is as gorgeous and fit as Diane Lane or, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer or Angela Bassett, these women are not 40. You know, they're, they're much more experienced than we tend to think of. But when you think 60, you don't necessarily think of those faces. And so it was very important to me to, to make sure that everything that that age encompasses was reflected, that there are women who are not just rolling over and, you know, taking their calcium supplements and their, and their estrogen and saying, Oh, well, I guess life is done. That, that there are plenty of women who are you know, even more vital and dynamic and engaged and involved than they were when they were younger, it just in a different way. 
sometimes. And so that was a lot of fun to, to explore and play with and, and kind of very fitting for where I am in my own life, you know, where you, you look at and you go, well, menopause. Okay. So this is fun. Um, and you, you have to start making sense of a whole new way of life. But, you know, it's so funny that you say that in terms of what you conjure when you think of 60, because when the new Sex in the City reboot just started, somebody had this meme going around and they're not 60, but they're like in their 50s or whatever, but they're right. showing what they look like today and their age and that the Golden Girls were the same age when that show started and the different ways the two women groups of women were portrayed. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh my gosh, like how far we've come, you know? And so, but it's great that you're making sure that that is portrayed the way it should be as well. Yeah, I, I saw that meme too. And it really blew my mind. And I was like, oh man, I, I hope we get some of these memes when, when the book comes out, kind of comparing them because I, I you know, they, they really are, these characters were such fun to write. And, and it, it was just a, a fascinating journey for me to kind of dig into who they would be you know, what were the formative experiences of their lives? And, you know, what women do I know who are that age? And and how do they behave? And, you know, would would they still be able to kick somebody's ass at the age of 60? You know, what are what are their values? What are their experiences? What what have they let go of? You know, what what have their choices cost them over the years? It was just it was a a whole new again, it was a whole new world I got to create, uh, which is I think one of the the most well, it's it's probably one of the greatest pleasures you have as a writer is just to to create a whole new reality and populate it with the people you think would live in that space. Well, I need to make sure I'm on the list for that one because it sounds great. <laughs> well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. I literally just two days ago finished a book called Swan Dive by Georgina Pazkogan, who is the first Asian American soloist with New York City Ballet. It's a memoir, and it was. Um, she's called the rogue ballerina because she, um, speaking of badass women, um, and I really, it was hugely enjoyable because she, she really digs into like what it costs you to be a dancer with a professional company. So I, I love reading memoirs by women who live very, very different lives than I do. But there, there were a lot of things that I could absolutely relate to because, you know, she's a, she's in a creative occupation. She's an artist. And so there's a lot about, about her journey that kind of really, makes sense with me, uh, to me. And I, I just, I thought it was a fantastic read. I my treat for when I finish, uh, what I'm working on now is I get to dig into restless girls by Rachel Hawkins and I we're Twitter pals and I absolutely adore her. And she wrote last year's the wife upstairs, which was kind of a modern retelling of Jane Eyre. And now, you know, for months she was on Twitter going on about Restless Girls, because it was supposed to be, did I say restless? It's reckless. Because it was supposed to be her, her murder boat book. And I don't think you can possibly oversell how exciting a murder boat book could be. So what's a murder boat book? Why is like a, they're on a boat and there's a bunch of murder? Yes. Yes. It's oh. exactly what you would want it to be. And it's Reckless Girls by Rachel Hawkins. And it literally just came out like two weeks ago. I love the cover on that one. It's all the flowers, right? Yes. It's this yes. gorgeous, bright, bright, bright yellow. And it kind of echoes the style of the cover that she had for The Wife Upstairs. But this one is, I'm, I'm super excited to dig into it. And I am keeping it as my, my special treat for when I finish what I'm working on now. So it, it's, it's my carrot for getting through what I'm trying to write right now. <laughs> well, that's a good way to do it. Your reward at the end. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Well, Deanna, this has been wonderful. I have loved your series forever, and I'm thrilled to pieces that we finally got to talk about it. And I can't wait for everybody else to dig in and then make their way to the impossible imposter. Thanks for taking the time to come on. Absolutely. My pleasure, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations From A Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.